I thought I would start this morning with a, a story. And this is a story about when I was in middle school and my family took a big old van and we drove out to Yellowstone National Park. And so one afternoon, my mom and my two youngest sisters, they decided they want to go ride horses. And I had, I had TMJ, you know, like this jaw issue when I was a kid. So riding on horses didn't feel too good to me. So my dad was like, well, why don't we just go off and we'll take a hike ourselves? And so that was wonderful. We went off to this mountain hike and I couldn't tell you how many miles long, but if I had to guess, it was probably like six or seven, you know, with, with pretty big, steep inclines. So my dad is an athletic man, but I would say his sports are a little bit more like racquetball and golf and bowling and fishing. He's not like what you would call a backwoods hiker. So he takes me to this trailhead and we start this hike with less than a half of a bottle of mint Snapple between us. Right, we've got no water, we've got no snacks, we've got no toilet paper for this multi-hour hike. And, you know, we're at some altitude, and you know, when you're in the mountains, you've got to drink more. When I lived out in western China, I lived at 8,000 feet, and I, I drink like three liters of water a day, just as sort of, um, just as a rule. So the first mile or so of this hike is literally straight up this mountain. We're on these like switchback trails and I'm working really, really hard. And by the time we get to the top, I have more than finished that half of a bottle of mint Snapple and I was so freaking thirsty. <laughs> and I just remember my dad being like, oh, you know, it's, it's not that long, we'll be fine. Let's just keep going. You know, well, that mountain felt like forever to my 14 year old self and it still feels like forever in my memory because of the thirst. And it's like I have these little snippets of these beautiful memories on the trail, you know, of like a really beautiful lake at the top and the petrified forest and these nice meadows and this feeling of being with my dad who I love, that that was fine. But it might sound terrible, the thing I remember the most, most clearly is just being thirsty. And it's that kind of thirst that just like overrides almost any enjoyment. And I was thinking about when I wrote it, I was thinking actually about Ryan Bowles and your, he's been posting about his Appalachian trail hike that he took a few years ago, a few years ago? 20 years ago. I was thinking, you know, like hunger and thirst and lack of sleep can just like override any enjoyment of being able to look around. So instead of like lingering on the contemplation of the beauty around me, I just wanted to get back to the trailhead and drink some water. And I think even when we're genuinely experiencing joy and beauty in life, we can still be like so thirsty that it's distracting. And I don't know if that makes sense, but I think even when life is going well, it's like we have to have these continued sources that bring us refreshment so that we don't collapse and burn out. So I read through the book of Genesis a few years back and something that struck me was the number of altars and wells that people built. Right? They went through and they built a lot of altars and they built a lot of wells. And they usually built them either to mourn somebody, like someone had passed. They would build them if they were honoring some sort of agreement that was made between two people. Or they would build a well or an altar to commemorate where they felt like God spoke to them or where God had come through for them in some significant way. So these were things, these were things that they built to mark something important that had happened. And they would spend time building them. You know, they'd spend time going out and looking for these big stones and hauling them and making these sort of elaborate little structures or literally digging in the desert for days at a time. So sweat and blisters and heat went into this task of marking significant events. And I noticed too how often they went back to these altars and these wells and they remembered where they were and they honored whatever had happened there. 
Right, so they invested in memory and then they invested in these sorts of signposts that marked their lives and the lives of the people that came before them. And so as I contemplated altars, I was thinking about how stones don't really give life to humans. It's not like they're bad or they're useless, especially if they, you know, are there to help us remember good things, but they're not really a substance that helps us draw nourishment. Unlike wells, which have water, like that's a source where we can actually get nourishment for life. So I started letting my mind wonder a little bit about what kinds of altars and wells that I had made in my own life. You know, my Aunt Carol passed away a couple of months ago. She was my favorite aunt. I hope my other aunt's not listening. <laughs> when we went to bury her, um, I went and I stopped by my grandparents' grave sites as well as my cousin's grave. My grandma Swan was particularly important in my life. And for me, I felt like those are a little bit like the altars of old. You know, they're these stones that mark significant people, and I'm glad that they're there, even though I don't get to go very often. They're a place I can go to specifically remember, right? To recall someone who's been particularly meaningful in my life and to remember some different events that we had together. And sometimes we scatter ashes at significant places for the same reason. And on the other hand, to mark people's passing, sometimes I've done things like I've written a song, or I've created pieces of art, or I've planted a tree. And Penny, who gave her her testimony this morning, I know she goes around and she sometimes tips way too high in remembrance of her late husband, Matt, who would go and he would like way over tip people. And I don't know, I I thought maybe these things are a little bit closer to wells. You know, wells give like a nourishment that can bring life to an entire community, just like music and art and trees and blessing other people can do that. And they also nourished my own soul and my own grieving. So both altars and wells seem important. They feel like they play a part. So last week when the Reverend Dr. Renee Jackson preached, and she was incredible, by the way, if you didn't hear it, she's worth listening to online. She used a story from the book of Genesis about Isaac. And as she was talking through it, that's what prompted me to start thinking about these wells and these altars again. So I went back this week and I reread Genesis 26. And I thought I'd like to share this particular part of Isaac's story with you in a little bit more detail. So the point where we're picking up in this story in Genesis 26, Isaac is married to a woman named Rebecca. And he has children and he has some livestock of his own. And so he's, he's doing okay until a famine comes over the land. And so Isaac starts to think about fleeing with his family and his animals and taking them down to Egypt. It's funny that in the Bible, it seems like when there's a famine or something catastrophic that happens, people often go to Egypt. You know, they're out in this land of what is today Israel and Palestine, and they they go to Egypt whenever they need more food. But we're told that God intervenes, and he asks Isaac not to go to Egypt, but instead to go to a part of the region where a people called the Philistines live. And so he does that, and he goes, and he meets with the leader of the Philistines, Abimelech, and he asks if he can safely live among his people. So Abimelech welcomes Isaac, and he says, sure, you and your family can live among us. However, Isaac is scared, and he's scared because his wife, Rebecca, is exceptionally beautiful. I understand. And (laughs) he's afraid that if he tells Abimelech and the other Philistines that she's his wife, that they're going to get jealous of him and they're going to kill him so that they can take Rebecca for themselves. So Isaac lies to all the Philistines and he says that Rebecca is his sister. And so then one day, after many years of living there, 
Abimelech oversees Isaac caressing Rebekah, and he realizes that Isaac has been lying about their relationship. So he calls him in, and he's like, she's totally your wife. Why did you say she was your sister? And Isaac's like, well, you know, I thought you might kill me and take her. And Abimelech's like, no, fool, you know, I'm actually kind of mad because what would have happened if I had tried to take her for a wife or one of the other Philistines had slept with her? That would have brought guilt on us. Look, I'll just order all of my men to leave her alone. So I'm going to pause for just a second here because there are three things I want to make note of before we move on. So the first thing is, is just, can we just consider how much it sucked to be Rebecca? You know, like her body is just up for grabs by any man who might want to sleep with her or who might want to, you know, kill her husband and steal her for themselves. And I don't like to just kind of breeze through some of these stories without at least sort of pausing and noticing what that might be like. Are any of you guys watching the new TV show, The Handmaid, Handmaid or Handmaiden's Tale? I see a couple of yeses. You read the book? Yeah, it's based on a Margaret Atwood book from the 80s. And what they've done with it is they've taken in part some of these sort of Old Testament scenarios and translated them into a sort of a modern dystopian world. And it really shows the effect that these relationships had on the women in the Old Testament. And I will warn you, it's a really disturbing show. So just kind of be duly warned if you check it out, but it's really well written. So it's really terrible for Rebecca. The second thing I notice is that Isaac doesn't feel safe. And it's a little bit interesting to me that God instructed Isaac to go to this place that made him feel afraid. Right? It wasn't the logical place for Isaac to go. In fact, it made him uncomfortable for many, many years that he lived there. You know, right? He's so uncomfortable that he has this magnificent lie about Rebecca. And so I think about Isaac, and I think about how, like so many of us, he really holds a mixture of both trusting God and not trusting God. And maybe even trusting and not trusting his own ability to hear from God. Right? He trusted what he thought he was hearing enough that he didn't move his family to the safe bet down to Egypt. And yet he still felt this need to cover up who he was to be safe, even though we find out later he really didn't need to do that. And I think that sometimes when we feel like we've heard something from this spirit of love that kind of is this mysterious thing that holds all things together, I think it's really natural to feel hesitant about leaning into it because it's like, well, what if we're wrong? I met with a woman this week and she was telling me that when she was looking to buy a house a few years back, that she was mostly looking in Ann Arbor because that made sense for her with her job. But she was looking at one house in Ipsy. It's actually around the corner from where Rachel and I live now. And she felt like God told her that that was the house that she needed to buy. So you might call it deep intuition. I call it God. But whatever that inner something is that guides us, it told her to buy the house. And she said, you know, this feels really illogical to me. She said, but in hindsight, it's actually been like the biggest blessing I've ever had because her job changed and it ended up being a closer commute. And then she has some sort of specific physical um, disabilities that this house just happened to work a lot better for her. And she was like, you know, I wouldn't be anywhere else. I really trust that that was God. But at the time she said, I was like, are you sure? Because this really doesn't seem logical. I'm gonna do it because I trust you, but... And as I was listening to her this week, I thought this is a little bit like what I think Isaac had. You know, he had a little bit of this like, I think I'm hearing that I'm not supposed to go to Egypt, but I think I'm still going to protect myself because this is a little bit odd. 
right? And I think I like the humanness of him in this, that when the narrative says that God told Isaac to go do such and such, that he actually wasn't sure, like it wasn't clear enough for him to remove his fear. And for me, that helps my own expectations for how I try to hear from God, right? If this great spirit of love is actually there and actually does want to help and guide humans, it might not be like this big booming voice that leaves no doubt, right? It tells us that there's a little bit of risk in leaning in to what we think might be God. And third, we notice that Isaac repeated the sins of his father Abraham in lying about his sister, or his wife being his sister. Right, so Isaac's dad, Abraham, he had also met this very same Philistine leader, Abimelech, years before. And so Isaac, Abraham had gone to Abimelech with his wife, Sarah, and said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And she actually was his half-sister and his wife, which is a whole nother story. But he knew he was lying, and so Abimelech, it says, took her. Right, but he hadn't yet slept with her, but he had like taken her into his household and then he had a dream where God told him that Sarah was actually Abraham's wife. So he goes to Abraham and he's like, hey, I had this dream. Is she actually your wife? And Abraham's like, well, yeah. And I think there's a lot that you could unpack with these parallel stories. You'll notice there's a lot of parallel stories in the book of Genesis, especially between brothers and fathers and sons. But perhaps the most important for this morning is I noticed that what the ancients were seeing was that children sometimes repeat the patterns of their parents. And I think certainly we all know that we are not destined to repeat our parents' mistakes. But there is sometimes a synchronicity that the ancients were noticing and writing down. And when I looked at this story, I thought, well, that's interesting because Abimelech has appeared in both of these stories and he seems to have learned from his, his first mistake. You know, if there's kind of a wealthy nomad who comes to live with your people, you know, don't try and take the sister. That's not gonna be good for you. <laughs> but Isaac hadn't yet learned not to lie. You know, something he probably learned from his dad. And so God used Abimelech to gently correct Isaac. In effect, he's surprisingly good to him. And sometimes when we talk about families being healed or even people or nations, I think we're reminded that God thinks big picture, that God sometimes thinks in terms of generations. Because throughout the book of Genesis, we see God correcting unhealthy family dynamics and patterns through multiple generations of human beings, little by little. So if we go back to the story here, Abimelech is at this point where he knows that Rebekah is Isaac's wife and everything is fine and Isaac is able to flourish in that land and he actually became quite rich and powerful. And so after some time, the Philistines did get jealous of him and they weren't jealous of him because of his wife, but they were actually jealous of him because of his wealth and his power. So some people started looking at Isaac and they, they did the equivalent of what you might think of like going and toilet papering somebody's house, only a little bit you know, like more dire consequences. What they did was they went to the wells that Isaac and his household used for water and they filled them with dirt. And there were several wells in the area that Isaac's dad, Abraham, had dug up and those were the ones that he was using for water. And so, as you know, if you're living in an arid land and there's famine and you've got lots of cattle, you're kind of in a pickle if you don't have water. So Abimelech, the leader of the Philistines, he comes up to Isaac and he says, look, I'm going to have to ask you to move on because you've become too powerful for our people and they're too jealous and I can't control them. I can't stop them from filling your wells or from trying to kill you or your family. And I think sometimes when we're reaching a new season in life, like when we're hitting a time of transition, whether it's a time of transition that we're in control of or one that we're not in control of, we can start to feel some of our wells dry up. 
that what's been working to bring us joy and peace no longer will work in the same way. And that sometimes those things won't work because people are actively sabotaging your joy. Like for instance, maybe you've been at your job for many, many years and you have nowhere to kind of go but up and you're super competent, but you know that there's nobody above you leaving, but you're just really good at your job and your colleagues see this and they start to feel a little bit threatened by you. So they might start to make your life a little bit miserable. And so where your job has been a source of joy in your life, suddenly it's no longer that. And the only way to find your life again is to go and to dig a new well, that you've got to go and move on. And this is what Isaac does. He picks up his household and all of his cattle and he moves to the valley of Gerar and he settles there. And we're told that he and he opens up some more of those ancient wells that his father Abraham had dug. You know, Abraham lived a long time and he had been around a lot of places, so he dug a lot of wells. So it was like anywhere, it seems like Isaac went, there's more Abraham's wells. So he has his people dig those out, he gets some water, but at the same time that he's doing that, some of his servants, they go and they dig yet another well. And they find fresh water. And they're happy about that because they have a lot of cattle. But some of the herdsmen that were already in the area, they came up to his people at this new well and they said, no, this is ours, this is our land, so this well and this water belongs to us. And so Isaac's herdsmen, they named that well Essek, which means dispute. And they didn't want to get embattled over this well, so Isaac's men, they move on a little bit further and they dug another well. And once again, the herdsmen in the area come up and they quarrel over this well and they say, no, this water and this well, it belongs to us. And so Isaac's herdsmen, that well, sitna, which means opposition. And interestingly, the root of the Hebrew word for sitna is actually the same root that's used for Satan. It's kind of like opposition, accusation, those all go together. Right? So they've been quarreling and there's opposition over this water that gives them life in the land. And I think sometimes this feels like this is what we can expect in a transition that this is a story that's a little bit more of a metaphor for life, that wherever we, whenever we resituate ourselves in our lives, in our relationships, there's a sort of territorial dispute that goes on as people acclimate to the new you. Right? It's like if you put up a new boundary with a family member or with a boss. You know, sometimes people will respond with anger or with a lot of confusion to that new boundary. Like if you say to your extended family, like, look, I, I can't talk about politics at the holidays any longer. I just, I can't do it. That needs to be off the table. And you go to your holiday party and there's always some uncle or sibling or brother-in-law in my case who will, <laughs> you know, continue to try to do it anyway. And then they're annoyed when you re reiterate, like, look, I really can't talk about this. There's a lot of other things that we can talk about. And so people usually, you know, they, they respond a little bit with this sort of opposition or quarreling, but eventually they do find a way to settle into the new norm in terms of the situation of their relationship to you. But that quarreling or opposition is part of that transition period. So Isaac's men, they've dug up these two wells and they've essentially had them bullied away from them, but they persist and they dig a third well. And this time no one fights them for it, so they name it Rehoboth, which means room. Isaac had to keep digging wells until there was room for him. He had to keep digging wells until there was room for him. And after that third well was built, we're told that Isaac had a dream where God told him, look, I'm the same God that your dad worshiped, 
And I made a promise to him that I'm gonna keep, that I'm gonna use your family to bless the entire world. And so Isaac goes and he actually builds an altar this time to commemorate that space where God talked to him. And then he builds another well, and then he builds another and yet another and another so that his family was able to flourish in this new space. And it intrigues me that in that land where Isaac flourished, he had wells that were old as well as wells that were new. Right, he had the wells that his men had opened up that had originally been dug by his dad, and then he had the wells that he had to fight for. And so on a big picture spiritual level, it strikes me that perhaps this story has something to say about what's going on in Christianity, just kind of in general right now. That there are ancient wells that are being dug up for reuse, and those bring us some spiritual life, right? There's some practices that parts of the church had neglected, things like silence and meditation and like vena, which is a way of slowly meditating on scripture. And yet there's also these new wells that are being dug up and fought for, right? There's new ways of connecting with God. There's new ways of structuring different communities of faith. There's new ways of thinking about who's included in communities of faith and how they can participate in those communities of faith. And there's new ways of thinking about integrating wisdom from various traditions. And this, I think, can be really exciting, especially for, you know, kind of a theology church junkie like me. But on the other hand, it's like we live in this tension of this quarreling and this opposition and this time of transition for the church. So when I read this story of Isaac this week, I was thinking about how both as a, a female and as a queer pastor, that I've really had to dig new wells in the midst of disputes and opposition and accusation. And many of you have had to dig new wells as we've been digging new wells together to make space for us, to make space for our kids who we wanna raise up knowing that you know, women are empowered and people are included and you want your, your little boys to see women and people of color and queer people all um, worshiping God together and being able to participate, that that's a matter of digging new wells through opposition. And it's like Isaac dug and dug until there was room for him. And then he emphatically stamped his place in the world. He fought for it and then he called it room, right? He was like, finally, there is room for me. But it's like, you gotta keep digging until there's room. And I think that can apply to many aspects of our lives. You know, I was thinking, I was just kind of pacing as I was writing it this week and I thought, man, yeah, if there's not room for you in your job or in your family, keep digging. You keep digging a well, dig a new well until there's room for you. That seems to be kind of what this story is telling us through the wisdom being passed down. Then on an individual level, I think there's a couple more drops of wisdom that are offered in this Genesis story. You know, Isaac dug these wells to sustain his own life and the life of other people, but he also built an altar to commemorate sort of his experience with God through that transition. I thought for some of you, if you're going through a transition, it might be helpful to actually do something like that. You could take stones, you could do something physical, you could build something to kind of mark like the end of a chapter or the beginning of a new one. And for some people, they find it really meaningful to do that, to mark something that they're grieving or something that they're looking forward to, that they feel like you know, they're supposed to press into. And I think what I've come back to most through the years is I've thought about altars and wells. It is funny, this, this theme comes up now and then for me. I start thinking about like, well, what kind of altars and wells have I created in my mind? And that's probably been the most interesting part for me. Like what thoughts and memories do I go and revisit and remember often? And what do I get out of those? 
Are they helpful to me? What do they signify? And what sort of ideas do I go to that actually bring me life? I think there are certain, there are certain thoughts that we have that run through our mind or certain memories that we rehearse or certain conversations, at least I do. And I think, are those ones that are conversations that bring me shame? Am I going back to places that are really discouraging to me? Or am I going back to places that bring me life? You know, like that memory of my dad. I mean, I was really thirsty, but actually that, that memory brings me a lot of life because I love my dad and he makes me laugh. You know, he's one of those people that takes me on a long hike without any water. <laughs> and you love him anyway. I thought, you know, maybe some of the high school and middle schoolers, if you're in here, might relate to that, right? You know, like sometimes your parents do things and you're like, gosh, like mom, just stop dabbing. It is not okay anymore. What? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you love them anyway. So that's a memory that brings me life. And I start to think about, well, what, what kind of memories do our families go back to and our friends go back to? What kind of memories do our churches go back to? What do we remember? What are our collective stories that we revisit and tell? And which ones are healthy and life-giving and which ones aren't? And if there are ones that are not bringing us life, is there a way that we can start to either dig new wells or maybe unclog some of the memories that might be more helpful to us. So we're gonna do a little bit of that here in the meditation. So every week we try and do like a two to three minute guided meditation. And I thought we would just spend maybe a little extra time on the meditation this week, just seeing if God maybe opens up something for us. So to start that, I would just invite you to just feel comfortable in your chairs. You can close your eyes if you want, you don't have to. And just pay attention to your breathing and as you do that, I'll start to walk you through a scenario which you are invited to do but don't have to do. And to start, I'll just ask you to imagine a place that makes you feel safe. It can be a real place or not a real place, but a place where you feel safe. Notice some of the things that are in that space. What's the ground like? Is it cold? Is it warm? And as you look around, you notice that there's a pile of stones. What do they look like? are the stones? Are there a lot of them, just a few of them? You look down and you see a stone near your feet. And that stone represents a good memory, 
that you have? What memory is it? up the stone and place it on the altar and as you place it just offer thanks for that memory and then you turn around and you notice a well walk toward it and start to notice some of its features. If you haven't already, go up to it and look inside of it. Just see what's there. If you're willing, you may just ask God what that means. Or take a moment and ask the spirit of love to open up new wells of life for you, whatever that might mean in your situation. Jesus, even with all of the the joy and the beauty and the love that we experience in our life, sometimes we can be weary travelers. And you told that Samaritan woman that you are our source of life. And so God, I just ask that you would open up even more places where we can experience nourishment and joy. And I ask that if there are those of us who are maybe in a transition period, either between jobs or something in your, your personal life with a relationship, Lord, I ask that you would help people to dig new wells until they feel like there's room for them, for who they are, wholly and completely, to be known, to be accepted in this sort of new way of being them, this new understanding of themselves. Ask your blessing on each and every one of us through our week. May your presence be close and near. In the name of Jesus, amen.